Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The Sweet 16. Doesn't taste so sweet, does it? In fact, it tastes like chalk. Watching this weekend's action was like eating a box of chalk. It's tied for the chalkiest Sweet 16 in history. In other words, the top three in every region are all in, as well as a pair of fours. Chalk, 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 chalk. And now people can stop saying chalk for a while. We get it. We understand. The only teams that are not top four seeds are a 28-win Auburn team that beat the crap out of Kansas and a 12 in Oregon, who I said last night on Twitter is the nastiest 12 I have ever seen. I mean, seriously. My ass, they're a 12. 12s are for scrappy mid-majors. There's nothing scrappy or mid-major about Oregon. But just because there weren't any crazy upsets in the second round does not mean that the games weren't good. There were some that were very good and a couple that were close to instant classics. Close. How close? This close. Allen will trigger. Everybody in the building scanning. All 18,000. Allen looking. Gets it in up top to Taylor. Five seconds. He's on the right wing. He drives inside. Leans in. Puts it up. No good. Tap back. No good by Dawkins. Duke rebounds. And the ball game is over. The Blue Devils escape. 77 to 66. That's Westwood One NCAA Radio Network. UCF came that close to knocking off Duke. And not just Duke. But Duke was Zion. R.J. Barrett. Cam Reddish. Three top 10 picks. UCF nearly did it. Every time I watch that replay, I expect the ball to drop in. I still can't believe it didn't go in. It touched about every single inch of the rim, but it did not fall. How the hell did that stay out? But the shot that would have destroyed just about every single bracket simply would not go down. UCF did everything they could to win that game. They earned that win. Going into the game, the hype was all about Zion v. Taco. And that battle lived up to all the hype with Taco blocking Zion, not once, not twice, but three times. If Zion looked like a man among boys the whole season, Taco looked like the man's father among boys. Again, he blocked this guy not once, not twice, but three times. And you knew it was going to come down to these two guys. You knew it would come down to Zion v. Taco in the final seconds with Duke down three. It's a lot of time. End up seven. Williamson driving in on Taco. Oh. And it's going to fall as the basket goes. How about that courage? Talk about attacking. Put this team on your shoulder. Big time delivery. How about those onions, Greg? So if you're Zion Williamson and you're going up against a seven foot six blocking machine, what's going through your mind? Zion, quote, a lot's going through my mind. But like coach said, I consider him the greatest coach of all time. And when he looks at you and tells you you're made for this moment, it's like the most confidence you can be given. So when I went to the basket, I knew it was going in. End quote. Zion scores. Taco fouls out. And that set up some of the most painful what ifs ever. If you're a UCF fan, because while the hype going into that game was Zion v. Taco, the reality of the game was Zion v. Aubrey, as in Aubrey Dawkins. The UCF guard had 14 points in the first round. He broke out for 32 against his dad's old school, tying Zion's total. Zion is the greatest college player since the greatest college player. 
And Aubrey matched him bucket for bucket and needed only one more bucket, one more fraction of an inch to win that battle and win that game. Run that final shot back one more time. Allen looking, gets it in up top to Taylor. Five seconds, he's on the right wing. He drives inside, leans in, puts it up, no good. Tap back, no good by Dawkins. Duke rebounds, and the ball game is over. The Blue Devils escape 77 to 66. How did that not go down? Every time I watch that, and I've watched it 100 times, I expect it to go down. Zion said, quote, I mean, when he tipped it, you talk about microseconds. When that ball rolled around the rim, it looked like it was going in. But as Coach K talks a lot about, the basketball gods, they had our back tonight, end quote. Man, they sure as hell did. Because 99 times out of 100, that ball drops. And if Taco is still on the floor, he probably finds a way to get that down. And that is brutal for UCF fans. And if you thought that was painful, that was nothing compared to what it was like in the UCF locker room after the game. I always love those shots of the winning coach coming in to the winning locker room, getting drenched in water, and partying with his guys. But Johnny Dawkins talking to his team, who played their guts out, was powerful and it was painful. I don't often get to tell you guys this, man, because we're pushing moments like this. I'm just proud of you guys, man. I'm really proud because what you did this year, that just matters. You did this year representing our program, representing our university. You could be more proud of how you handled yourself on and off the court. And you guys have been terrific. So just know, man, these guys left an amazing legacy, guys. Left an amazing legacy that will never be forgotten. And so again, you know, it's hard. It's hard for me to speak to you guys right now, as you know. I'm feeling like you feel. And that's how we should be. So let's bring it in. One, two, three, family! It's absolutely gut-wrenching. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever seen a locker room like that. Just gut-wrenching. That's why the tournament's so great, and not just because of the incredible upsets from the underdogs, but because of the great games where the Blue Bloods do hang on. Matt Norlander is my guest. Matt, good to have you back. How are you? Uh, I'm stunned, and I guess relieved that uh, Hawks called me. I picked up the phone. I didn't think it'd be him. thought it might be uh, another member of the XR4TI. Uh, when it was him, I presumed that he actually bailed on the marathon. But, Jim, hold on a second. Are you telling me right now that this guy ran a marathon and is back in the studio? What's going on here? Completed the marathon in the studio, rocking the medal around his neck to prove it. It's a real thing. It happened, Matt. I know. We're all kind of shocked, but he uh, did do it. You know what, it. though? I'm going to need video evidence to make sure we don't have, uh, was it Rosie Ruiz back in, like, 81? We need, we need the clones to fact check this whole thing. No, he did. He did. It, it took him, like, 12 hours, but he did do it. All right, so let me ask you this. How many times have you watched the replay of Aubrey Dawkins tip it in at the end of the UCF Duke game? And, Matt, are you like me in thinking that that shot is going to go down every single time and never does? Yeah, you know what? You know what came to mind? Uh, I've watched it at least 15 times. Uh, I still can't believe that Denim Brown shot did not go in in 2006 to knock out George Mason in the NCAA tournament in the Elite Eight there because this is what we see happen so often. And, you know, it's part of the drama, part of the heartbreak. And, frankly, I think for casual fans that watch this tournament and root for their brackets to be blown up, uh, part of the frustration is that the higher seed of the Blue Buds, the big dogs, they just almost always seem to escape in these kinds of situations you can't even believe that ball didn't fall in. Not only that, though, if Taco Fall doesn't foul out, and he deserved to foul out, don't get me wrong, 
but if he doesn't foul out, R.J. Barrett's not grabbing that offensive rebound to put it back and put Duke up by one late. So for UCF, you had to have three or four things not go your way for Duke to escape. Of course, Duke is Duke, and uh, things wound up going Duke's way. It moves on. But I will say this. There's been a lot of talk, Jim, about how Zion Williamson has made Duke likable. I, 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 I have no issue with Duke, but I reject that premise. No, Zion Williamson has made Duke very watchable, more watchable than it's ever been. But I post, I post on Twitter during this game, I was like, you know what? If Zion Williamson actually has made Duke likable, then if you're watching this game right now and you normally don't like Duke, you're going to be rooting for them to win. And I got, as the kids say, ratioed into the ground. Uh, by no means were people rooting for Duke to win that game. But if you're also honest with yourself, having a Duke versus Virginia Tech matchup in the Sweet 16, uh, just a little bit more enticing and appealing than, say, a UCF versus Virginia Tech matchup. So we have that to look forward to and what is a very stout uh, Sweet 16 play to game. No matter how big or small your team is, Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors with thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game. When the pressure is on, count on Ferguson. Matt Norlander joining us. I like it. All right, so if you're Buzz Williams and you're Virginia Tech and you've already beaten Duke once this year, and yes, they did so without Zion, but if you're Buzz, what are you taking away from that game? Well, I mean, you're taking away, one, that we're going to play this game relatively close to Blacksburg. We get it in D.C., and we know we're going to have a pretty, a pretty good, strong contingent. You're taking away that we didn't have Justin Robinson in that game, and now he's back. Uh, we get to be refreshed. We get to, by the way, it, it will, for Virginia Tech to play much closer second weekend than it did first, I think is no insignificant thing. And then Duke, much has been made about how poor it is from three-point range. It might be becoming a, a tired talking point. Uh, Jerome Bettis is from Detroit, if you have not heard. But guess what? It's relevant. 30.7% from three-point range. Duke will regress to its mean. Virginia Tech, on the other hand, loves to shoot it from deep, does often, makes 40% of its three-point shots. It's top ten in America from three-point range. Now, we've seen some freaky stuff in the tournament already. You know, it's, uh, take example, we saw Wofford, Kentucky. You have the most prolific three-point shooter in the history of the sport have the worst statistical game from three-point range ever in the tournament. That's Fletcher McGee, 0 of 12. No one had ever shot that many threes in a game, in a tournament game, and not made one. And the guy who's made more than any wound up doing it. So the tournament can be freaky like that. So potentially we get some sort of weird thing where Duke shoots 45% from three versus Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech goes cold, only makes 15% of its threes, and onward will go the Blue Devils. But the, the statistics don't say that's going to happen. And when you have the confidence that you've already beaten this team, I think it plays into uh, an advantage for Virginia Tech. I, I think it's going to be really close. It's going to be hard to top what Duke UCF was in terms of a watch because that was a tense game the whole time. Aubrey Dawkins played the game of his life. But I do think Virginia Tech has a real chance to knock off Duke. It w- I think that would be uh, not as surprising of an upset as, say, three or four other potential possibilities in the second weekend. Like Oregon beating Virginia to me would be much more surprising for as hot as Oregon is than Virginia Tech over Duke. Matt Norlander joining us. There is so much to unpack in that. Let me get you to stay on Kentucky for a minute. Again, Wofford gave Kentucky everything they could handle, and they did so, as you point out, with Fletcher McGee going 0 for 12 from deep. Matt, if you're John Calipari, how worried are you about what that means against Houston this week, or are you all about survive and advance without P.J. Washington? The P.J. Washington stuff is huge. Um, him not being available, uh, first of all, that, that whole situation was a, a little bit shifty there because it seemed like Calipari was kind of trying to pose it at the start, like maybe he'll be available, and then the next thing we know, he's in a hard cast. He's, you know, he's got the leg on the, uh, 
on the little wheelie deal there. And now, I mean, maybe he's going to play, but no P.J. Washington. I mean, he is such an important factor. I mean, he is the team's leader. He is, he is by far the most important player on that roster. Now you play a Houston team that is not built the way that Wofford is. They're very different teams. So maybe you embrace that kind of change of style. This is a team uh, that's Houston that's more built to play. Like Kentucky would rather play Houston than Wofford, I think, if you gave them the chance, even though Houston has rated as a better team. Defensively, I think Houston will be good to go. They're guard-oriented, so I think it'll be a pretty fascinating matchup there, like Ashton Hagens on Corey Davis, maybe Galen Robinson. That'll be pretty fun. What Kelvin Sampson's done has been awesome. It's been amazing. They finally get to the Sweet 16. We know last year they got, they got Jordan Poole at the buzzer. They finally break on through. Um, I, have, I have Houston going winning this game. I think it'll be close. It'll be low scoring. Uh, it'll be a pretty fascinating watch. And that game, in fact, is going to, if you're trying to uh, set up your Thursday and Friday here, uh, that game uh, will be snug up against Duke-Virginia Tech. So the best window of the Sweet 16 will be the late Friday window. Uh, have two screens ready because it's going to be an awesome one. But I, I do think Houston will move past Kentucky and, uh, and get to the Elite Eight. Matt Norlander joining us. Matt, go back to Oregon for a minute. They're the only double-digit seed left, but they were a preseason top 15. They certainly did not look like a 12 yesterday in the way they pulled away from UC Irvine. How different is this Ducks team from the one that lost three straight to Oregon State, USC, and UCLA only a month ago? Oh, it's, it's noticeably different. And now it's still, I will say this, now they're hot. They haven't lost since February 23rd. Uh, by every single measure, every single measure, Oregon is the worst team left on the field. Um, they, are, they are hot. Maybe they're one of the hotter teams. But if you take into account everything they've done this season, I mean, they're 29th in Ken Palm. The top 14 teams at Ken Palm are still alive. Yeah, LSU is 18 and Oregon's all the way back at 29 there. Defensively, they've been great. Kenny Wooten is, is a clone, uh, pun intended, of Jordan Bell. Like when we saw what Jordan Bell did two years ago getting Oregon to the Final Four, uh, Kenny Wooten's done a lot of that. Lewis King is playing better and better. And for them to have done this, you know, Bull Bull goes down early in the year without an injury. They haven't even had him. Uh, they've overcome that in part, not because of a big man, but Peyton Pritchard. Some of the shots he hit against Irvine to knock out the Anteaters were, uh, were just absurd, like vintage March Madness stuff, just step-back threes, really, really impressive. But that said, it's a defensive-oriented team. Um, I know that that game against Virginia is expected to be slow, like really slow, like first to 60 probably wins. But Virginia's got a really good offense. I know we were all kind of gripping a little bit uh, with that Gardner-Webb start, but they rallied to win by 15. And then Oklahoma was just within shouting distance. But I, I still think Virginia is going, to, is going to beat Oregon. And it's going to beat them in a way where it's like, you look up and the final scores say like 64 to 58, but it feels like 66 to 48 kind of deal. Um, I, I don't think it's unthinkable that Oregon can win, but I, I think Virginia won't get too too much of a push here against the Ducks. We're covering as much ground as we can with Matt Norlander. He joins us once again. Hey, Matt, Kobe White had 17 points. He had six rebounds in North Carolina's bludgeoning of Washington. You did a video piece of him for CBS Sports, and in that piece you pointed out he is the highest-scoring freshman in UNC history, breaking MJ's record. When you look at Carolina's incredible history, have they ever had a freshman like him? They haven't. Thanks for bringing that up, by the way, Tim. I appreciate that. Yeah, do, uh, do check that out if you could. Kobe White's got, uh, he's got one heck of a story. I actually think he's now the most, with John Morant out of the tournament, uh, the non-Zion division of the most watchable players, and there's still plenty of fun dudes. But to me, Kobe White, he's almost got like a little Russ Smith in him in terms of unpredictability, but uh, fantastic scoring guard. You know, he never thought he would be at North Carolina, but uh, he committed only a few days after getting an official offer. His father was still alive then. His father got diagnosed with cancer, uh, and, and that, that disease took him quickly. So his dad never got to see him play in a uniform. 
Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of been a bittersweet thing for him. But he is a fun guy to watch. I talked with Roy Williams multiple times throughout the season about what it's been like to, to coach Kobe. And there's a lot of talent on this roster. Like, I'm not trying to shortchange Luke May, Cam Johnson, what they've been able to do. Nasir Little is coming on so strong where if Nasir Little can play like this, then, yeah, they can win the national championship. But Kobe White can go. I mean, he is the fastest point guard that Roy's ever had, not named Ty Lawson. And the way that he can score, distribute, and yet sometimes, yeah, he can get a, he can get a little ahead of himself. He's a freshman. But they have never had anyone like him. And he is – it's not just the scoring stuff. Uh, he is just – he has set marks that have not been done by UNC freshmen before. So he makes, to me, more than anyone – UNC as must watch as it's ever been, and that's a that's still a loaded reason they got there. You've got some some big time coaches still around, but uh, I still like North Carolina to come out of the Midwest. All right, so before you go, you mentioned John Morant back on Thursday. You were in Hartford for the John Morant show. What did you make of what you saw? Uh, it was just it was amazing. So just real quick to set the scene. So Vermont took up half the building because they come down from from the Green Mountain State down to Hartford, and they their team loses a good one to Florida State, but but they stick around for the second game in that session. Everyone's on Murray State. Morant's wowing the crowd. It's kind of a smaller building, that not an NBA arena, so it made for some cozy confines. It was terrific. Morant had honestly, considering it was the first triple double since Draymond in 2012, only the 17th ever, ninth official one, I guess. One of the 20 best games by a player in NCAA tournament history. Like, it's, it's absolutely absurd. Um, and then I had a chance to, uh, to talk with Shaw after they got knocked out. Like, a 28-point loss. Get this, Jim. Like, 28-point loss. He started hot. Florida State just overwhelms them. A lot of guys in that spot, you know, end of your season, almost certainly the end of your college career, if you want to fulfill your media responsibility and kind of make your way on out, like, it's totally understandable. But I posted a video to, to social media, to Twitter, uh, which since melted my mentions down, um, but that's a whole other story altogether. But what people don't know is, like, Ja was sitting or standing in the entryway waiting for the media timeout to come, and it was about four or five minutes. Like, he could have been like, you know what, like, I'm just going to head out. But, no, he just waited, had his buddy, had a couple teammates with him, and he didn't know who he was going to give the shoes to. He just happened to walk behind the Purdue bench, and there was a young boy there, gave the shoes. And then Jim, when he was doing this, it was interesting because he's got like a little bit of his eye onto him in this regard. Like pregame, uh, people want to get the photos of him. They're calling his name. And then all of a sudden, everyone realizes he's walked back into the arena. Because remember, the game, his game's been over for about 45 minutes to an hour at this point. Most people think he's left the arena. So everyone starts you know, taking photos, screaming for him. As he leaves, after he takes the photo with the kid, a little boy named Nash, uh, the whole section like stands up, gives him a round of applause. He's got people reaching him for high fives. And he kind of just dips back into the tunnel, into the quiet, heads off to the bus with his career over. A tremendous kid, a uh, huge, huge, great character with him. Couldn't have been more impressed with what he did. And Murray State, it made us believe for a little bit. But uh, just like every other uh, potential Cinderella, unfortunately, um, it got knocked out uh, well before to the sweet. Hey, listen, as any coach or GM will tell you, the foundation of any great team is great talent. So it's no surprise that teams dedicate as much time and effort as they do to finding the right players. The same rule applies when it comes to hiring. You have to have the top talent, but you don't have endless resources to find that talent. 
What you do have, though, is ZipRecruiter, and they scout talent for you. With ZipRecruiter, one click sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. It is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through that site within the first day. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ziprecruiter.com slash clones. I use the service myself. It's incredible. Try it now. ZipRecruiter.com slash C-L-O-N-E-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash clones. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Bill Polian, who is not exactly the biggest Patriots fan. After all, the guy did work a decade and a half with the Colts. Eight years with the Bills. But Ben Volan tweeted this quote from Polian on Sirius XM NFL Radio. When asked about Gronk, Polian said, quote, I think it's hard to argue anybody has ever played tight end as both a blocker and a receiver better than Gronk. And there have been damn few that ever ran after the catch like him. That's essentially where I come out. This is why I've never seen a tight end like Gronk. This is why I think Gronk is the best tight end ever. Nobody could do what he could do. Nobody was as complete as he was. And again, there are guys who had better numbers, but it's not like Gronk's numbers were bad. In fact, Gronk's numbers were awesome. Three Super Bowl rings, first tight end in history with three straight seasons of double-digit touchdowns. Most yards per game by a tight end in NFL history. Most receptions, receiving yards, and receiving TDs by a tight end in playoff history. Most receiving TDs by anybody since he entered the league. So great numbers, actually. And then, of course, the nickname, Gronk. The perfect nickname that summed this guy up in so many different ways. Gronk. It is such a great nickname. Like a big lug. A big clown who will absolutely clown you running around with those giant hamburger helper gloves, that huge brace, running over guys, running through guys, running past guys. I mean, has there ever been a bigger physical mismatch on the field than this guy? Ever. Linebackers could not run with him. Safeties could not tackle him. And cornerbacks... We're like flies on a windshield. And the guy was an absolutely monster, monster blocker. I mean, not like an overgrown receiver who didn't like to block. This guy was a road grader who also loved to get loose in secondaries. He wasn't an extra receiver or an extra blocker. He was an extra receiver and an extra blocker. Just ask the Rams, who paid the price on the most significant drive of the Super Bowl. The only reason the Patriots were able to score that one TD that they scored was because they ran Haas-wide juke three straight times and with three completely different but successful results. And the only reason why that play worked three straight times was because of Gronk. Because you never knew if he was going to be running a route or pancaking a defensive player, so you had to account for both. You had to prepare for both. And if you want to come in here and say that the Patriots are done, now that Gronk's done, you go right ahead. 
I'm not doing it. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that him retiring is not a big loss because it is. Like, while he no longer beats double teams the way he used to, he still draws a hell of a lot of attention, which allows Tom Brady to work in other places. I could even argue that they don't win that ring last year without him. He made the biggest play of the game. He balled up when it mattered most. He was still pancaking fools. So, of course, it's a big loss. It's a big loss. But it doesn't mean that they're dead. It doesn't mean because he's done that they're done. Just because Gronk is done doesn't mean they're done. Keep falling for that trick every single time it comes around. Like I've said it before, I'll say it again right now. Apparently, I have to keep saying it. The Patriots are done when Tom Brady and Bill Belichick say they're done. There is no way to replace Gronk. But if any team can do it or get beyond it, it's the Pats. Unfortunately, they've had a lot of practice. Remember, this guy's not played a full season since his second year in the NFL. And yes, Tom Brady was a completely different quarterback with Gronk on the field. One goat feeds off another. And there isn't another piece out there that they can just plug into the Gronk spot. You know, Belichick can't do what he's done in the past. He can't take some DB and turn him around and make him a tight end. So ultimately, they may decide that if they can't replace him, they just have to go in a different direction altogether and change the entire offense. Now that they know he won't be coming back. I mean, Gronk is still young. And Drew Rosenhaus was actually making some noise about this. There is a possibility, however remote, that maybe he takes a year off and maybe he comes back. But if this is in fact it, then here was his final post-game conversation with Bill Belichick. We're going to have fun tonight. Yes, we are. <laughs> we deserve it. You're damn right. We deserve it. We're damn right. We haven't stepped out I haven't stepped out in like eight months. I got to step out tonight. <laughs> I'm with you, man. Yes. I'm even going to step out. Oh, I like it. That is so good. What a great exchange. You know what's more amazing than all Gronk's records? The fact that he got a high five from Bill Belichick and a commitment that Belichick was going to, quote, step out. You see, this is the other side of Gronk because the highlights weren't just of him trucking fools. They were also of him acting the fool and being in on the act. Roll it. What's up, Boston? The catch. Goodbye, Gronk. Touchdown, Patriots. Hey, what do you guys think of Roger Goodell? Burn. He throws a lot down the right side for Gronkowski. Oh, yeah. Makes the catch at the 35. And Gronk is into the end zone. Touchdown, Patriots. Why are you on the Gronk crew? To sleep with Gronk. That's going to be tough. There's like way hotter chicks than me, but I'm hoping I'm a little bit more freaky than them. Who's getting wild tonight? It's a pump and go. And Gronk is open. A throw and a catch and a touchdown, Patriots. That's what I'm talking about, baby. And there's only one thing you can deflate. These nuts! Shotgun step. Throws down the right side for Gronk. Oh. Makes the catch to the 20. Gronk for the record book. Touchdown 69 for Rob Gronkowski. Yo, sorry, Fiesta. So I party for the fans. <laughs> I like to dance. You like to dance? Yeah. Hit it. You could have a superpower. Boom. Is this time machine count? Yeah, let's do it. Boom, I'm in Florida. Throws on the go. Finds Gronkowski. Reaches down and makes a tumbling game. A sensational grab at the eight. Senor Roberto, will you spike the pinata? Blue 42! Blue 42! Go, go, go! Oh, oh! No! Woo! Part of that was Gronk on Jim Rome on Showtime. I'm so glad we had him. 
And that day, Gronk lived up to all the hype. Gronk showed up larger than life. He delivered. You know, like, on the one hand, you look at Gronk, and he is exactly how he appears. Yo soy fiesta. On the other hand, you look at Gronk, and he's not what he appears. I mean, this dude is so much more cerebral and so much more instinctive and so well-prepared and so gritty, man, so freaking tough. Such an amazing player. Such a complete player. So on the one hand, he looks like just that big clown, that big lug. But on the other hand, this dude is so good, so focused, man, so disciplined. And the beating he took and just kept coming back. I'm going to miss Gronk. We are joined by Landry Shamit. Landry, nice to have you on. How are you? Hey, Tim. How's it going? Thanks for having me, man. Good. Good to talk to you, bud. Thanks so much. You beat the Knicks in their place 124-113 to 113 yesterday, and that's the team's fifth straight win. So let me start right there. How much confidence is there in that locker room and around your team right now? Uh, we feel good. We, we feel like we have a good group, and you know, since the trade, it felt like you know we've been able to click pretty quickly with one another, get on the same page. And, um, I think the, the biggest thing I noticed from coming in was just the culture was set from the top down, you know, the, from Doc to – you know, the front office to win and uh, wants to, you know, exceed expectations that we have. And uh, I think I think we, we all play with the same chip and, uh, you know, kind of push the team as far as we can. We're talking to Landry Shamit. Landry, I've got kind of a tough connection with you right now. Let me ask you one more question, and we'll see if it's all right. Otherwise, I might pick you up. I know you picked up a bit of an ankle injury yesterday, but if you look at the larger picture, this was a team that was battling for a playoff spot just over a month ago, and now you're fifth in the West, and you're battling for the home court in the first round. So what's it been like for you since joining the team in that trade that involved Philadelphia? Um, yeah, I mean, it's been it's – a, it's a different different aspect here. You know, you're – like I said, kind of, you know, feel like we're trying to overachieve and, and, and do more than, you know, what anybody put expectations on us. But, um, you know, to be in the situation that we're in with fifth, we're definitely not satisfied because we know how, you know, crazy and volatile the West Western Conference is. Uh, but, you know, there's nine more games left this season, and that's hopefully nine more wins we see, you know, coming our way, and that's, that's how we want to approach it and put ourselves in the best situation possible for playoff time. Landry Shamit joining us, Clippers guard. You know, you made the point, you brought up Doc a moment ago, but you've also made the point that he empowers you to push it anytime you get a rebound. He's not looking for you to look to somebody else. He wants you to get out and run. What's it mean to you that your head coach has got that confidence in you and he's empowered you to do that? Yeah, everybody in our locker room, he talks about it all the time. He says he wants us to play free and play the right way. Um, I think that's the best way that, you know, for, for a team like us to, to play. So we we have a lot of guys that are talented and doing what they do. And um, I think when we all play free and don't feel like we're under a, you know, kind of a blanket of what we can and can't do. Um, you know, I think we, we, we play well with one another. We all believe in one another and empower each other to you know, do what we do. And um, we have a very unselfish group and, you know, we, we all just kind of want what's best for us all. So uh, it works out well. Uh, and, and especially having Doc at the, at the head of it all kind of empowering us to, you know, be ourselves and do what we do. And you were drafted by Philadelphia. You had a really nice thing going on there, but then you were part of that trade to L.A. Hey, look, it's a business. Everybody loves to say it's a business. It's easier to say it's a business when it doesn't involve you, but when it does involve you and you find out you've been traded, what goes through your mind? How'd you process that? Yeah, the first thing was just like, what now? You know, it's like, 
um, being totally honest, I had no inclination that, you know, I would be traded. I'm, I'm thinking I'm the only rookie on this team and, um, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be here for a while. And then, you know, you get a phone call from your agent at 2 a.m. and you know exactly what it is. And it's just, I mean, a lot of things are going through your mind at the time. Um, as you go through the whole spectrum of emotions, you're mad at first and angry. And then, you know, you talk to jump the phone with Doc and, you know, Lawrence Frank and, and you're feeling motivated, ready to go play for your new team, and then come down from that and confused, and you know it's you feel a ton of emotions in a very short period of time. Um, but I think the best thing for me was once I got the basketball, once I got to meet my teammates, and, and we had a practice in Boston the night before we played Boston. Um, I think at that point was when you know I started to feel a little more normal uh, when it just got back to basketball, and then you know I was able to treat it back as like you know a business, like you mentioned. Landry, I really appreciate that response, man. That's a really honest response, and I do appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it seems to me there are two ways you can react, right? You might go into the tank, or you might seize the opportunity and thrive. Right. You've done the second, and you did it quickly. You scored 17, including 13 in the fourth quarter, and you led that 28-point comeback in Boston in your first game with the Clippers. So what was that game like for you? Man, that, that game was crazy. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um I hadn't beat Boston yet. You know, we were that's obviously a place where you want to go and win, a kind of a historic venue and a lot of history and just a, a place everybody wants to play. And I hadn't won or beat them yet. So, um, you know, we we went in there and they were, we, were, we were getting throttled the first half. It was like a 30-point deficit almost. And uh, I learned a lot about our group really quickly. We came in the locker room and nobody acted like the game was over at halftime. Nobody acted like, you know, we were out of it. Uh, we talked about what we need to do better, what we need to change, and we came out and did that. Just played hard, uh, and, and you know, found a way to you know walk them down, chop wood, and we ended up you know being able to win the game. And uh, it was just a lot of fun to be a part of, you know, kind of you know that that comeback. So it was just fun to be on the floor with my teammates and uh, playing with them, and it was it was it was awesome. Landry Shamit joining me. I'm watching the Clippers this year, and I'm telling you, they seem like a team. You guys seem like a team that. You're never going to back down. You battle every single night. Now, you are hitting 42% from three this year, but even better since you arrived with the Clippers. For people who watch you play at Wichita State, there might be a feeling that you're a different player now than you were there. Is that accurate? I mean, how much has your game changed <laughs> since this time last year? Yeah, my role is completely different, uh, you know, right now relative to last year. Last year, Wichita State, for anybody that don't watch me, they, you know, I was a – I was a point guard. I was on the ball, you know, every possession, you know, kind of facilitating our offense. And anytime I scored, it was through, you know, you know ball screens and playing with the ball and transition and, um, and that sort of thing. And now, you know, I'm playing like strictly, you know, off the ball, two guard, uh, running off screens and, you know, being able to play without the ball. I love my role now. I'd be lying if I said I didn't miss a little bit of the point guard stuff, but it's not, not anything that, not like I'm saying I don't like my role now. I love my role, love my teammates and love, you know, what I'm able to do and how I'm able to contribute. Um, but it is, it's a very, very different role. Uh, people probably might not recognize me from, you know, last year to this year. You know, something that hasn't changed, and it's one of the things you've talked about, and knowing you as a basketball player, you told Slam Magazine earlier this year, I thought this was really interesting, quote, you don't have to be the most athletic or make the big-time highlight plays. You don't have to do that to have a successful basketball career, knowing how to play, knowing how to be effective in doing what you do, end of quote. To me, that's a really wise statement for somebody so young. Where did you learn that approach? Uh, just, you know, I was lucky to play for you know, 
you know, a really good AAU program and a good AAU coach who, you know, it used to be annoying, but we would play, you know, like, you know, three on three, no dribble and stuff in practice, not be able to dribble the ball uh, a couple of times, like for, you know, like half the practice, five on five, no dribble. And so you got to learn how to, you know, play and move and be able to score and cut and read screens and, you know, that, that whole thing that, you know, kind of goes untaught uh, today. You know, a lot of kids want to play with the ball, play on the ball, and then, you know, they get to college and that's all you know and you kind of dug yourself a little bit of a hole. So, um, I mean, I was just lucky to have good people around me and, and uh, you know, to be able to teach me and put that mindset into play. Hey, listen, you're a really humble guy. And the last time you and I spoke, we talked about the fact that you've been overlooked in the past. Now you're getting a ton of love, a ton of respect. Is there, despite that humility, is there any party that feels like saying, it's about time? It's about time. Uh, Jim, it's funny, man. I, I, I don't think I'm ever going to lose that that feeling of being, you know, overlooked. I, I don't, you know, there's no sense of satisfaction whatsoever. Like, I, you know, it is cool. It's good. And, you know, I guess, you know, being on your show and, you know, <laughs> being, you know, being able to get asked the questions and all that. But I don't think that's, that's a chip I'm always going to have, man. It's just, um, you know, that's who I am. That's what's got me here, regardless if I'm seen globally as the best player or whatever. It's not going to be, nothing's going to change. So it's, um, just who I am and you know, how I'm going to continue to carry myself. I like it. You'll always be welcome on this show. I'll always ask you the questions on this show. Landry, before you go, <laughs> let me ask you about Lou Williams. He had 29 yesterday's win, man. Lou, he's something else. Like, it doesn't matter what time the game starts, where that game right. is played. My man just scores. As one pro yeah. looking at another, what do you make of Lou and his game? Man, it's frustrating because it's so easy. This looks so easy. You know, he just walks in the lane and shoots layups and just so easy. Uh, even on a bad night, the other night, I, I wouldn't even consider that a good night for him. Um, he, you know, he still finds a way to go get thirty and lead us to a win. He's he's something special. Um, you know, nothing like I've seen before. Uh, just how easy and fluid it is for him to score the ball. Um, so I think, I mean, he's obviously a huge part to our team. Uh, I don't know. I don't see how he doesn't win Sixth Man of the Year. I think he's more than deserving. And, uh, just, you know, if you look at what, what all he has to do for us every night to help us win, you know, um, but he's, I mean, he's, he's incredible. When you need auto parts, but you cannot get to the store, simply visit O'ReillyAuto.com. You can buy your parts online and pick them up in the O'Reilly Auto Parts store of your choice. There are no shipping costs, easy returns, convenient pickup on your schedule. Shop your way for the parts you need at O'ReillyAuto.com. That's O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. And I think Hawk, considering all the heat he took prior to that marathon, and the fact that he finished it deserves a Q&A right now. Adam, put on the cans. No, wait. Better yet, Adam, walk it into the big studio. Yeah, man, I'm asking you to walk it in. If you're watching on CBS Sports Network, check him out. Watch. Look at this guy trying to get around. I may need about five minutes. Wow, dude, you look horrible. Here he comes. The champ. Adam Hawk. Look at the slides with the stupid socks, the stupid striped socks and the slides. Bring it in, dude. You look great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Here he comes. Adam Hawk. And there is the medal. If you're watching on CBS Sports Network, check it out. Can we get a, oh, dude, that is nice. Thank you. That is really nice. No wonder you're so proud of that thing. Yep. Thank you. Remember really? when uh, David Wise brought his Olympic gold in? This is uh, like that except better. Are you ever going to take that thing off? 
Um, yeah, I actually, I am because I got so damn sunburned on everywhere. As you can see, I have the headband tan and I'm sunburned on my neck. This is actually killing me right now. This, this hurts as bad as yesterday hurt, but. Did you sleep with that last night? Um, I actually, I don't remember anything about getting home yesterday. I just kind of ate some pizza, drank some IPA and blacked the hell out. Dude, what was that like? Okay. So first of all, I mean, I should do this the right way, but after running a marathon, what was pizza and the IPA like? Oh, How did that taste? Oh, it's great. Um, the IPA better than the pizza. I don't know why, but my body was in a weird mode where it just it didn't know what happened. So I thought the pizza would be better than it was, but the the hazy IPA from Golden Road was absolutely How did that feel? delicious. It was great. The thing is, I could only have one, and then it just knocked me straight out. So what time did you go to sleep? Uh, I took a giant nap from like five to seven, and then I woke up to go right back to sleep. And uh, my wife was the MVP last night. She took care of the kids all day. She let me uh, hang it up early, which was nice. What was that sleep like last night? Uh, I was like I was like a rock, and then the alarm went off. How'd that feel? Getting out of bed was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life, and up until then, the hardest thing I'd ever done was running a marathon. But it was getting out of bed that was way way harder. Imagine what an NFL player feels like on Monday after a game every single Monday. Exactly. No wonder they hate those Thursday night games. All right. So how does it feel to be an official marathon finisher? It feels great. It really does. Um, I would say that no one can prepare you for how hard it's going to be. You hear everything about hitting that wall mile 18. The problem for me is I hit the wall mile 12. And then it was just an absolute grind. I had two different races. I ran um, my first half just fine. I don't care about the pace. I don't care that all of you guys care about the pace. I just finished the marathon so screw everyone that's getting on me about my time but um the the second half was an absolute grind I was I was I was talking to myself I was talking to God I was talking to spectators I was just like how the was hell anybody am I talking back um I, I I was talking back to myself I was calling myself a lot of names um bad words and just saying like get through it do it for your wife do it for your kids do it for the jungle do it for everything i even went to the david goggins podcast like at mile 18 oh you did just talking about getting through that stone and with the shovel and he talked about how when he went out for his first run when he was like 260 pounds he wanted to go run 10 miles he ran a quarter mile and then just turned back and went inside of the couch so i was like drawn on that for inspiration i was trying to use anything i could to get through adam what got you through that how close did you come to quitting and and really what got you through something like that um, there's a lot of humanity out there. There are people that are like in wheelchairs, people on crutches doing it. There are kids out there for, um, students run Los Angeles. I think what got me through was everyone around me that was also in it. And I've seen Twitter. They're all like, yeah, you were with soccer moms and fat guys there at the end. <laughs> so I don't care. I was out there and so were they. There's, uh, there's nothing anyone can take away from us. It was a lot of fun and what got me through were, was the people that I was finishing the race with. Obviously, it was great to see Jeff in SoCal. He had an awesome sign and I do want to take this opportunity to call Drew in West LA the narc of all narcs. He narked on you for the diarrhea take back in the day and then he rolls up on me with a skateboard and live periscopes the thing and didn't even identify himself. Like I can see someone in the corner of my eye and I look over and I'm like, that dude is just straight up filming me. Why? And I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? And he goes, hey, he doesn't say anything. And then I get home and I see my ass just walking on live video that he posted. Wow, man. Yeah, and I was like. Good looking out, Drew. Yeah, come on, Drew. He's on a skateboard just having a, a good old time. Living the life while Mocking I'm out there you. dying. Yeah, he did get video of me walking 
Um, which I, that's another thing. There's a stigma that like, if you walk part of a marathon, you didn't run a marathon, which is <laughs> Drew was at mile 19 and 20. Dude, I was gassed. I'm sorry. I walked it. I picked it up for the last mile and a half. Jeff and SoCal got me through it. He's a five time, six time finisher, something like that. He gave me a bottle of water and he said, don't quit. Just keep going. Did he run? He didn't run this time. He was just out there, uh, I think, with his girlfriend or his but wife. But he wasn't there to clown you. No, he was there. He, he, he had water for me. It was great. One, one thing I will tell you is there's so much good, fun food on the track. Like, you, first you get gel. Like, it's called goo. And then you get, um, like, water and Gatorade. And then... All of a sudden, like Sam Hawk, were you there for the food? Is that why you're doing this? It was like a trip to Costco. It was just great samples everywhere. There were red vines. There were pretzels. There's people had uh, hot how dogs. Of, how often? Every mile, every mile and a half, and and all of a sudden, I'm like eating Skittles and red vines and pretzels and just like crushing Gatorade and like getting refueled because if I if you didn't have that food or that salt, it wouldn't have gotten you through because I was watching people just break down and. And, and go nuts. In fact, I read in the Daily News today, the LA Daily News, there were uh, nine life-threatening injuries yesterday at the marathon. Nine people went to the hospital with life-threatening injuries. I thought for sure you would have been one of the nine, too. I did, too. And I, again, Wait, What's that like? So when, you, when you're like, you have no idea how you're going to get through it, and you see guys going, people going down mm-hmm. or freaking out, like, what's going through your mind? It's just weird, because I bet that those people didn't plan on that, and then it just hit them suddenly out of nowhere. Their body just shuts down. So there was a bit of fear in me, like any second my body could shut down. And when I was on, I, I want to say like mile 22 was the worst. That was when I was like, I just, I just want to die. Your hips, your calves, your quads, everything is screaming at you. And walking hurts as bad as running does. That's like, that's another thing. People are like, oh yeah, you, you walked? Yeah, after running for 20 miles. And like, even the walking hurts after that. Go go run 20 miles Dude, and then you man, walk You man the hell up by Thank not you. crawling. Thank you. I'm so glad you didn't crawl. Yeah, me too. Maybe I'm, you should have. I'm just, I'm glad that it's over. I'm glad that I did it. There were so many more supportive people than than haters. And I do want to take the time to thank them because I got like nine out of 10 tweets were just awesome tweets from people that I just want to thank because it was, it was a lot of fun and it was great. And I felt like I was running with the whole jungle. It was cool. Yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and address the other 10% that had nothing but hate for you. Now, considering all the heat you took and the heat you were still taking, the fact that you have that, they don't give those things away. You have to earn that. You finished the marathon. You are a marathon finisher. You have that. What do you finally have to say to those people who are banging away on the keyboards, talking crap? Just go do it and then show me your time. And the first thing I'll tell you is I don't care about your time. I just care that you went and did it and that you finished because it's an amazing accomplishment. It's a very scary thing to do the first time. You, you are faced with this daunting task of going 26.2 miles. If you do it, I, the last thing I'm going to ask you is your time. Asking someone, asking a first-timer what their time is is like asking someone what their weight is or how much money they make. Who cares, dude? You finished. That's great. And then, like, I got this CrossFit coach who's, like, tweeted me and said, quote, no victory dance for walking at a running event. <laughs> and it's like, this guy's a coach. I mean, granted, he's a CrossFit coach, which means he went online and signed up for a certification that they just gave him for free with no background check. But he's he's in charge of, like, motivating people, and he's you out here. You sound like he's a sexual offender well, or predator or something. Not far off. He's, he's out here crushing people for doing marathons, and he's in charge of – of helping people reach their fitness goals. Like, what a cool CrossFit coach that guy is. Awesome tweet, dude. Yeah, but dude, he can execute unbelievable burpees, though. Yeah, and, and those jerk pull-ups, and, and and good for him. You know, I hope his workout of the day is fantastic today. I wish him nothing but the best. Okay, so in terms of coaches, though, was there not somebody, a guru, that was helping you 
prior to the event. Um, is this somebody you want to name drop? Wasn't I there do. somebody involved? Eric Gillison. He called in uh, last week and said, hey, man, I know we're late in the process, but I got a lot of great advice for you. And Eric has been huge for me. Uh, this is the power of the jungle. Trapper talks about it all the time. The networking that takes place um, in the jungle is fantastic. I hooked up with Eric. Eric gave me some great advice. He definitely helped me uh, get through the run. Between Eric and my older brother, Greg, um, that was all the motivation I needed. And then Keith, you know, we uh, we didn't train together, but we kept each other accountable. And Keith killed it. So shout out to Keith for his run. I got another great one for you. So this text just popped in. I'm going to read this to you. Sure. This text just came in on my phone. Dude! With three exclamation points. Dude! Happened to be listening on a treadmill, knocking out 30 miles, preparing to go after the 24-hour speed golf world record next month. Wasn't really feeling it today and was thinking of shutting it down at 20, but the Hawks' six-hour and 18-minute marathon story just motivated me to charge the bleep on. War to the mother bleeping hawk. Eric bleeping Burns. Burnsy. <laughs> wow. What up, Burnsy? My boy, Eric Burns. Let me tell you something about Eric Burns. That's amazing. One of the toughest, baddest mother bleepers who ever lived. He's like, I wasn't. Clones. Eric freaking Burns was not feeling it, but was motivated by Hawk's six hour and 18 marathon story. And now he's going to finish his workout. Hawk, Eric Burns is jocking you. I love that. I love Burns. He, what a great guy. Oh, Amazing dude, we podcast love Eric guest. Burns. When he does his big races, he crosses with uh, the Tillman jersey, which is awesome. That's great. Um, and that's cool that he's listening, and I'm glad that Eric he's getting something out Burns of this. Burns is listening yeah. and hyping you. and it's, Dude, awesome. you're motivating a super triathlete. I can't believe what I'm hearing. I, that's cool. Talk and your bleep, clones. You know what's great about that is he's a guy that understands how hard it is. Yes, he can do what I just did in half the time, probably even better. But he knows what it's like to go out there and how hard it is. And you see people from all walks of life. And, yeah, I was getting crushed by, like, 85-year-olds and soccer moms. But who cares, man? I'm yeah, just and, and Eric Burns is tipping his hat. All right? Yeah, that's great. EP, Shout out to my man. My man, Eric Burns. Good looking out, Eric. Love it. Love, love it. Good luck with yours. That is so great. I yeah, love that. That's awesome. I love that. The ATP. Don't go anywhere. Hawk, you're still part of this thing. The ATP is brought to you by O'Reilly Auto Parts. You want to get guaranteed low prices, excellent customer service at O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every day. That pumps me up. I am so hyped that Eric Burns sent that text. All right, so the ATP. Jim, now that Hawk has completed a marathon, does he have any more athletic achievements on his bucket list? Or is his next goal to break the mythical six-hour mark next time? John in Iowa. So when that thing was over, are you thinking, man, I'm never doing that again? Or are you thinking, you know, I think I might be able to do that again? Yeah, it's funny. Um, while I was out there, I was thinking I will never, ever, ever do this again. And then um, this morning I was like, I can't wait to try that again. Because I really do believe I could shave an hour off the time. Um, knowing what I'm getting into, knowing how much more I need to train for it, knowing the course, knowing when to dial it up and dial it back. I went in really underprepared, which is my fault. I will take complete accountability for that. But I really do think that I could shave an hour off if I, if I were to try it again. And I do want to try it again because I'm not particularly proud of that time but then again i'm just proud that i finished i think the first time is about finishing and the second time is about your time so I'll all right so out. what's that i mean do you run the la marathon again or you can take a shot at one of the others i think i'll do the la marathon again just because i'll know what's coming up and everything and the la marathon's a party i mean people are out there handing out mimosas and beer to some of the runners which is really real. cool for real there was some old milwaukee at uh mile 20 and i would have hit it but i was like i don't want my first sip of beer to come before i finish i was like i gotta save that for after so 
So I waited. But Keith knows what I'm talking about. You know, you saw the lady with mimosas and beer. It was uh, it was cool. And then um, yeah, there were Skittles out there. I was crushing Skittles. It was it was a good time. So yes, I do want to do the LA Marathon again. It was a it was a party. It was a lot. Of fun. All right. So here are a few other hits before we go to break. At Hitman Canadian tweets, how much did the Uber from mile five to mile twenty three cost? Um, none because I didn't get in one. But I I <laughs> wanted to get in one from mile eighteen to mile. 24 absolutely and i would have paid whatever the cost was nick and westchester tweets hawk look fluid and athletic while running son gronk on his bionic knee and ankle i mean that's fair there's <laughs> video to show that i was staggering and a lot of people are wondering why i didn't wear my running outfit in today that was my choice um i lived and died in that outfit i don't ever want to put that what did you do with again. that thing i'm it's somewhere it's it's not laundered i was i'm not going to wear that in i will probably torch the clothes because i don't want to look at them ever again Beaks in Studio City tweets, the best thing about Hawk finishing that marathon is that he was dressed as Nooch on a Friday night. Big Daddy Beaks, my favorite gloss ever. I dedicated part of my run to Big Daddy Beaks yesterday. Liz in Falls City tweets, still trying to figure out my favorite part of Hawk's marathon. Drew in West LA skateboarding alongside Hawk while periscoping or Jeff in SoCal waiting for Adam at the finish. Let it be Jeff. Jeff was way more inspirational and fun than uh, Drew who didn't identify himself and ratted me out. And uh, shout out to Alvin Delora who tweeted or texted me after and said, congratulations on your achievement, Adam. I would have stayed and waited, but I had to leave at 1 p.m. It was the most backhanded compliment I've ever had in my life. The guy had to leave before I passed. Hey, listen, at least he told you he was going to be there. You didn't find out till right before the race that he was going. We've been talking about this thing for weeks and and Alvi not once does he volunteer like, oh, indeed, by the way, I'm going to be there. Yeah. You know, it's true. Like I had, At least he told you. I know. I, I wanted to see my friend Ben Farber on the track, and I wanted to see Alvin Deloro, and they both left before I got there. It was, it was horrible. That's because you were not running fast enough. That's true. Alvi says I have to go really quickly. Last one, Gage Peak. At what mile point did you think you were dying pigeon? Uh, that would be mile 18. I thought I was dying, and I didn't think I was alive again until I saw Jeff in SoCal at mile 25. Let me, let me reiterate. All you idiots who are killing this guy— Eric Burns not only is giving him respect, but Burns, he said, he didn't want to finish a workout, but was so motivated by Adam Hawk's story that he is going to crush the rest of his workout. And that's Eric freaking Burns. Adam, sincerely, truly, I'm proud of you. Thank Great you. job. Thank you. You did it. Thank you, you so much. You are no longer the Sparrow. You are back to being able to utilize your other fake name, Hawk. You're once again a Hawk. By the way, the highlight of my weekend was having dinner with a celebrity Friday night over the marathon. Just got to throw that out there. Come on, Sparrow. Stop it, Sparrow. Get out of here, man. Start, start right now or you're not going to make it back before the end of the commercial Out break. here in Southern California, we are joined by Gonzaga head coach Mark Few. Mark, good to have you back. How are you, Mark? Hey, I'm doing uh, well, Jim. Uh, awesome to be back on with you. Awesome to have you back on. Another run of the Sweet 16. Mark, let me ask you about the win over Baylor on Saturday, 83-71. Brandon Clark had 36. He was 15 of 18 shooting. He had five blocks. As you know, he joined Shaq O'Neal and David Robinson as the only players in tournament history with 35 points and five blocks in a game. I know you've seen some special performances in your career. How special was this one? Oh, my goodness. Uh, probably <laughs> at the very top. Uh, just when you when you combine uh, how big the moment was and, and how much we needed every one of those plays, uh, we, as Baylor made some some very spirited uh, runs at us in the second half, and, and uh, uh, just the the level of athleticism and just how spectacular some of them were. Like it, 
Jim, as I watched them during the game, I remember going, okay, that's kind of BC. And then on the plane ride home, I'm watching the tape, and I'm like, holy smokes, I can't believe he, you know, he, he tip-slammed in a tip-slam until <laughs> he missed a, an alley-oop slam, and then Brandon came and followed him with a tip-slam. I don't think I've ever seen that in 30 years of coaching. Mark Few joining us. And the thing is, Mark, it wasn't just Clark, as you pointed out, Corey Kispert had a monster game as well on both ends. What did you make of his impact on the game? Well, it's funny. I said after the game, and I still mean this, uh, uh, Brandon Clark was absolutely just off the charts, magnificent, spectacular, any superlative you want to use. But for us, Corey Kispert was the player of the game because you know, Brandon's been able to do that numerous times for us this year, maybe not quite to that high level but for Kispert to to we put him on uh uh Mark Vital Baylor's big guy we kind of cross matched and for him to get in there rebound the ball the way he did poke balls away and then knock down those threes was huge we're talking to Mark Few you know Mark I'm thinking about this watching Baylor they throw some really unusual looks at you defensively and they can be tough to prep for especially as the second game of a weekend so what's it say about the comfort and the feel for the game that your guys have that they're able to do what they did on such a short turnaround well that's a great call by you uh they are really difficult they play we had prepped for the Syracuse zone a lot during the week you know, again, not taking anything for granted in that 116 game. That's a that's a scary, scary proposition to, uh, as a coach that darn 116 game. But also knowing that you know it's a two a two game tournament over the weekend, and we prepped hard for Syracuse, but also for Baylor zone because it's really a unique zone with a lot of length and pressed up on you uh, out on the perimeter. And Scott Drew, I I I said this going into the game. I think he's a vastly underrated coach uh, nationally uh just schematically and and you know how he gets his teams to play year in and, and year out and it was a it's a tough turnaround but you nailed it I, I mean i got a very mature team i got a team that's seen a lot that has experienced a lot if you have from our point guard josh perkins you know back down our roster to to norvell and tilly and and you know even Rui is has really kind of blossomed into a guy that's has garnered a lot of experience in, in big time games we're talking to mark few you know it's the second part of that question mark from a coaching standpoint i wonder how much of your job as a head coach is about what happens between that first round game and the second round game or between the second round game and the sweet 16 or is the success that you have in these situations the results of habits that you established back in the preseason well it's a combination of both I mean, unless you at this time of year, you got to really rely on on you know the foundation that you've built going all the way back to September. But then you know you've also got to just schematically get your guys ready for things like we haven't seen a zone like Baylor's all year. Nobody plays a, like that, so you you got to make some adjustments. And we put in some different sets uh, both the day before and the day of the game, which. I've been blessed at Gonzaga to have guys and, and teams that can handle that, that can then, get, then go out and execute it with just short prep. 
We're talking to Mark Few. Mark, listen, you got a bullseye on your back, and you know this, that, I mean, you're a power, power program. I don't want to put more pressure on you, but you've always been really good about referencing and bringing up the Rome Christmas card every single year. Just know yeah, the entire yeah. Rome family is going to bust out to come to the game on Thursday to watch you do work. Oh, but, oh my goodness. But I don't That's want to put huge. more pressure on you. No, no. no I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good, but but that is awesome. It'll be great to, to, to have that support and – Man, Florida State is loaded, as I'm sure you know. Essentially the same team that knocked us out last year. So they're long, crazy athletic, really, really deep. And, and I mean, I on Selection Sunday, I, I mean, I, I honestly thought they'd be up on that two line. And to see them on the four line was, you know, kind of a surprise slash shock. But, uh, you know, you got to beat good teams. You really got to beat good teams once you get to this part of the tournament and uh we're gonna have to play great to uh you know to to advance you know you just ripped two of my questions i was gonna say what was your thought when you saw them in the draw and they don't look like a four they don't look like a four at all they look like they're closer to a two so how do you go about approaching the next few days in terms of getting the right balance of prep and rest and then traveling to orange county what's the approach well another great take by you last year at this time we were prepping for florida state and killian tilly got hurt in in the last little half speed drill we did before we got on the plane, so that is definitely in the back of my mind. Uh, you know that, that you got to factor that in too. As a coach, you get a little too hung up in you know prep and reps and doing everything you can, but the health of your team being at full potential is probably the most important thing. And rested and fresh and and ready. So you know having the experience of going against them last year, our guys you know, kind of kind of know what they're up against, just their length, just how hard it is to score around the basket against them, and their versatility. They switch a lot. They play. I mean, Jim, I, I've never seen a, you know, a team play so many guys and, and Coach Hamilton be so comfortable with playing so many guys, and they just keep more guys coming in, coming in, coming in. It's almost like a hockey uh, exchange. And, and they all have just a, a little – you know, different thing they bring to the game, but probably the biggest thing they bring to the game is just the length and athleticism, and uh, it's really hard to score on them. And then the, the last game, what was thought to be one of their weaknesses was perimeter shooting, and they banged in like 15 threes. So uh, we, we got a it's a big week here. We got some time to prep for them, and and uh, we're a better offensive team than we were last year, and we're gonna have to come out and, and show that. And, and yeah, we're gonna have to obviously. You know, play our tails off on the defensive end too. The way they're, the way they're making shots now. I like that hockey analogy. It is true. It's like they're rolling lines. Like they've got line after line after line. They just keep yeah. coming at you, Mark. Before you go, I've now, got I to never go. do. I don't understand the hockey substitution. Is it just a free for all? Can you run in anytime you want, or how does that work? Well, they not exactly a free for all. <laughs> I mean, there is some rhyme and reason. There's a science to it. But yeah, you can just keep rolling guys in. They get their shifts. They go back yeah. and they keep coming. Yeah. But your point is, they've got depth and they've got fresh bodies. Listen, before you go, this is great. I think I want to go off the board. You made it very clear on Selection Sunday that there was no way that John Calipari could survive in the Alaskan wilderness. He hopped on Twitter after that and tweeted in part, quote, everyone was killing me last night saying I couldn't last in Alaska, said I wouldn't last 10 minutes. I could live off the grid easily, chopping wood, (laughs) fishing, hunting squirrels and moose now and then, scaring bears, Uh pooping in the woods. Come on, Alaska. Mark, I know you've got a lot of respect for Cal and his program, but is he fooling himself with that? 
okay, now he's my guy, and he's a very good friend of mine, and we talk, you know, a lot, uh, you know, probably once a week or so. Again, I, I will, I will re- reiterate, because I go up there and I fish a lot, Jim. I think you know that. A couple times a year I'm up there, and, and it's a, Alaska's a spectacular place. Uh, but, you know, you're on your own, at least in the, the trips I go on. He has zero, zero chance of handling, you know, days out there uh, fishing and recreating on his own. Now, he could go up there to a five-star lodge or whatever and eat some caviar and spend some time on the deck with a mosquito, a mosquito net around his face for a while, but uh, he has zero chance of going going out and, and living off the grid, I can tell you that. Uh, he couldn't live off the grid in, in his backyard in Kentucky. That's the best. His own family members, Mark, took to Twitter to say that he couldn't hang, he couldn't last. You tell me, what does it take to survive out there? What's it like out there? Oh, I mean, it, first of all, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, it's an incredible place. It, I mean, I recommend it for any family, even with you, with the, with the boys to go up there. I take my boys up there, uh, you know, uh, at least once a year. And, and, uh, the, the fishing is spectacular, but I mean, hey, it's 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 not uh, many days up there. It's not a very pleasant place. The bugs are all over you. The the the, the wind is howling. The rain's coming down sideways, and uh, and you know there's no uh, there's no Starbucks right around the corner. <laughs> you know, you're just kind of on your own, and you gotta figure it out. Mark Few, head basketball coach at Gonzaga, and as I mentioned, the only program to go to the Sweet 16 five straight years. Another great challenge. They've got Florida State coming up Thursday here in Southern California. Mark, have a great week. I'm not going to bother you, but the Rome family will be there to see you, and I'm looking forward to it. And it's great to have you on. Thanks for doing that today. No, I always enjoy it, and I now that I know you're coming, I hope we play great because we're going to have to. Just, we want to move on. I know you so guys thanks will. Thanks for having me on, and he's a prominent figure in the running community. Eric Gilsonen is his name. He's in Napa. He's actually on the call-in line right now. Eric, good to have you. What's up? How are you? Jim, great. Thanks. I've been listening a long time. Can't believe I'm on with you. Thank you so much. Hey, listen, it's great to have you on. So let me ask you, Na- uh, Hawk had told me prior to the race that you found him and you said, listen, Hawk, I can get you through this thing. I can get you through it. You just have to do what I tell you. So what's your reaction first to him finishing the race? And to you, does the time matter? No, the time doesn't matter. Less than 1% of the world's population since Adam and Eve have ever walked or run 26.2 consecutive miles. So he's in rare, you know, population like Burns and myself, thank God. And, you know, hey, he did more for running than most top Americans did. People are talking about the L.A. Marathon because Adam Hawk did the marathon yesterday. So, you know, that's great. People are going to run or maybe jog a little like Burnsy. He was working out this morning, but that's no joke. You know, that's no surprise. But here, people are going to maybe do a little extra. Maybe they're going to work out today. Maybe the next time they go to their doctor, their heart's going to be stronger and their blood work's going to be better. That's tremendous. Eric Gilson in joining us for a few moments. So, Eric, when you first heard that, what were your thoughts? I mean, were you thinking, I, I, I know the show, I know Hawk, I can help him. What motivated you to call and share your expertise? Well, he told me over the you know time uh, what his training was like, and I knew from listening. And I just knew from that point on, within a week before the marathon, the hay's in the barn physically. But mentally, from the neck up and nutritionally, what could I help him with? So to have a plan, A, B, C, and Z, always knowing you're going to go for A and hopefully not go to Z, if you have a plan, 
you can do it. So I just went over that with them, talked about salt, sodium, Gatorade, energy gels, mile to mile, 5Ks, breaking it down to 8.5 5Ks. And I gave them a little inspiration, talking about Eric Burns, myself, racing with the uh, Team Tillman Foundation, and never forget about Pat. Thank you for what you've always done to support Pat and the troops. But, um, yeah, you know, I just gave them a little uh, something from the neck up because the hay was in the barn. I'll get to them next uh, you know, month. We'll uh, give them a month to rest, and we'll get them ready. And three weeks from today is Boston, and maybe he'll join me in 2020. I announced that. I run it myself with David Gilbury. So you can't keep it unless you give it away. Nice job, Eric. Listen, I appreciate you very much. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for helping out. Nice to have you. you. Eric Gilsonen. Good night.